Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they shape the political landscape of this election. We have an incredible panel today with two of my fellow co-founders of the Lincoln Project, independent political strategist and our captain on this voyage, Reed Galen. Good morning, Reed. Hi, Ron. And communication strategist and former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. It's great to have you back again, Jennifer. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to be here. On today's episode, we are going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk broadly about all things voting. And as everyone knows, voting is the bedrock of our political system and has recently come under fire from none other than the president himself. So we're focusing on this today because there are a lot of potential issues around election security, accessibility, timelines that need to be addressed now so that these issues can be mitigated before the November election and fixed going forward. And a lot of you have been reaching out, whether it's on our town halls or in the email inbox about questions on this topic. And so we wanted to devote a whole episode to it, especially because as we're recording right now on this Thursday morning, and just before we get started, the president tweeted, and I quote, with universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote with a characteristically triple question mark. I don't really know where to begin, but Jennifer, what's your initial reaction to this tweet? And then read when Jennifer's finished, maybe you can help set the table for a broader discussion that we're about to have. Well, I, this is outrageous. It, it, for years and years, Donald Trump has made one outrageous statement after the other, and each one is worse and more damaging and more dangerous to the foundation of our republic. And Republicans across the spectrum have become like these uh, silent whipping posts of the president's abuse, and they say nothing. I, I when I saw that tweet this morning, I, the first uh, my first thought was something you have to do something there has to like somebody has to stop this protect the someone has to protect the ballot box protect the integrity of the election like you you get this immediate outrage and my that my second thought right after that is right who's going to do it the republicans in the senate who have uh, um ignored the president's dangerous incompetence that has led to over nearly 150,000 American lives lost to the coronavirus. Uh, the, the senators who, after seeing clear and obvious evidence that he tried to bribe a foreign leader to influence his election, decided to um, acquit him in the impeachment trial. Uh, the, the Republican senators who have completely ignored the fact that this president has been aware for over a year that Russia has been paying bounties for American sons and daughters on the battlefield. We think they're going to step up. They're going to say something about this now. Our elections are at risk. And if our elections are at risk, then our republic is at risk. And if every single American and every single elected American does not recognize the gravity of what that tweet means 
and express their outrage and rise up together to take an action, then every single one of them deserves to be removed from office. Reed, does first of all, does the president have the authority to do this? And does it matter? He doesn't have the authority to do it. Congress uh, would be the one who would set or reset federal elections. And um, while Mitch McConnell and his cronies might think about it, certainly I don't believe that Speaker Nancy Pelosi or anybody in the Democratic House is going to have anything to do with it. Um, It does matter, though, uh, I think politically, because this is the first time in American history that a president confronted with the calamity that he is instrumental in having uh, exacerbated uh, sees the worst economic news in American history. And his response is not to figure out how to mitigate the coronavirus and the death and the sickness and the unemployment that comes with it, uh, but to say that we should change the election in order to benefit him. And so for so many of us who have been watching this, and Ron, I know that you were ringing alarm bells, you know, much to your own detriment back in late 15 and early 2016, this is the next logical step. So we've seen you know, federal troops deploy, I would, uh, maybe they're troops, maybe they're cops, I'm not sure, but they wear military fatigues and they act like soldiers and they attack Americans in the street, whether or not it's Pennsylvania Avenue or Portland, Oregon. And, you know, what is this stuff? Is it test runs to see what they can get away with? Is this the next step in, you know, saying he's not going to abide by the results of the election? And it's hard to sit here on a Thursday morning and hear yourself say those things and not yeah. sound like you're a little bit crazy. Right. Um, because this is something that happens in banana republics, in, you know, countries, you know, that most Americans, including me, couldn't find on a map. Uh, and, you know, you hear about, you know, uh, as a snippet on the evening news. But they're not happening in those places. They're happening here and they're happening now. And I don't think that there has ever been a time since maybe the Civil War when it was so important that Americans take agency for their own nation um, and, and, and really stand up and say, we're not going to put up with this. It's not Donald Trump's country. It's not his government. It's our country. It's our government. It's our political system. And we got 95 days, 94 days uh, to make sure that he knows it. And there's a lot of, you know, technical things that need to go into it. But, you know, everybody who can vote has got to vote, whether or not they go in person whether or not they go early, whether or not they go by mail. We have to get to November 3rd, and we have to thrash this guy so badly electorally that he and his aiders and abettors just get out of D.C. as quick as they can, leave us all in peace, leave us all to heal, and let Joe Biden take the oath of office and set this country on a course back to health, uh, wellness, economic prosperity, and redemption. Okay, we've got a lot to talk about. And before we do, I want to take a really quick detour to help set the table a little bit more because you've used the word, the term banana republic before. Steve has used it. We've used it a lot. But I would like one of you to just explain, first of all, what is a banana republic? And what does it mean that the things, the trends that we're seeing, the attacks on our democracy right now, how do they compare to these countries that we're talking about that nobody could find on a map? And, And why are we so alarmed? about this. I say that with the context of, Reed, you and I having discussed the tragedy of the death of civics education in this country, which which I think has led to a bit of complacency and confusion about why so many people 
who do understand why this is so alarming are so scared of what's happening. So I just I want to I want to explain to folks why this is so serious at a at a high level. Can you do that? Um, well, sure. I mean, a banana republic is one in which uh, it doesn't matter who's on the ballot. The guy who wants to win is going to get ninety nine percent of the votes. He's going to have the most outrageous electoral uh, turnover in history. You know, Saddam Hussein when he ran Iraq, used to get 99%. I, I assume Vladimir Putin, whenever he decides to be elected again, will get 99% of the vote in Russia. Um, they have the mechanics of democracy, but not the reality of it. And I think that's what we you know, have to be concerned about here as we see Trump doing these things, is that he now knows that of this, as of this moment, he is going to lose, and he is going to lose badly. I don't know that he can ever take responsibility for the fact that the actions that have brought him to this point are part and parcel of his, uh, you know, pending electoral uh, demise. But, you know, it's it it is one of those things for us. We used to be the exemplar. We used to be the beacon of democracy in this world. We used to be, you know, as Reagan said, the city on the hill. And now, you know, people look from all over the world and they look at us and we're no city on a hill. We're you know, we're, we're darkened. We're, 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 you know, the shutters are closed. You know, the, the closed for business sign is up and, you know, that's not who I think a lot of us want this country to be, nor do I think it, it should be. And I think lastly is on the complacency piece. It's, you know, it doesn't take very much. If you're born in America, um, the country asks very little of you to be an American and you get a hell of a lot of benefit for it, uh, with very little input. And, you know, there's only so long you can have a birthright like that and not take it seriously before it's going to start to slip away. And so I hope what we're seeing today is that there will be tens of millions of Americans who maybe otherwise thought, maybe it doesn't matter. You know, I'm not going to participate. Well, it does matter. And you damn well better participate because on November 3rd, we're going to vote. We're all going to vote. And Donald Trump is going to lose. And when he loses, he's going to go. And that should be our mantra for the next 94 days. We will vote. You will go. Jennifer, I want to give you an opportunity to yeah, add. Well, I would, I would go beyond that and, uh, or, or maybe circle, circle back from that. When you look at Donald Trump's tweet this morning with his, you know, question mark, maybe, you know, should we delay the election when I, this is part of Donald Trump's strategy. This, not just his strategy to win re-election in 2020, this is how this guy works and has his entire life. He is sending out reminders to his voters to mail in their vote on the same day and, and sending out robocalls. Lara Trump did one. It, it's going out in the mail on the same day, uh, yesterday or the day before when he is tweeting out how bad it is, how, how unsafe mail-in voting is. And then this morning, he sends out this outrageous, dangerous tweet about delaying an election that you, his purpose for which is to protect himself from losing the election. This is his strategy. He thinks you're stupid. And, and people have to understand that at the most basic level. If you are a Republican or a right-leaning independent who has been unsure about what, what to do, stay home, vote for the president anyway, like you're just not, he is doing this for your, you are his audience, for your consumption. He thinks you're stupid. 
He thinks that you cannot see him saying two exactly opposite things at the same time. He thinks that he can convince you that somehow the American voting system that has has stood up for over 200 years, that has uh, it, it, you know brought us you know to Reed's point to you know truly you know that that shining city on the hill. Our elections and the way that we conduct elections are a foundational you know, are a cornerstone to that shining city on the hill. And Donald Trump thinks that he can convince you that somehow, suddenly in this moment, it's all blown up. It's all complete, that, that the truth is not the truth, that, that, you know, facts are not facts, and that somehow, you know, you need to run into the streets and demand that you not vote in November. That is, and the the reason that is so wrong and so damaging is that American elections are what set us apart for not just from banana republics, from all other nations on earth. We choose our representatives at the ballot box. We choose our presidents. We hold them accountable by voting. Anybody who is an elected official in our country who tries to tell you that you need to not vote in any manner for any reason is dangerous to the future of our country and needs to be defeated. If this does not convince you that we need to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism in a landslide, then I don't know what will. Let's start with a really quick summary of the different ways that people can vote in this election in different states. What are the, what are the different methods and how do they work? And, and maybe um, one of you can speak to whether there is any difference at all between absentee voting and mail-in voting, which the yeah. president seems to think are distinct. And um, Right. Yeah. Because, the president, to, yeah. because the president's an idiot. Yeah. Uh, or, or because the president thinks you're an idiot, one or the other. There are, there, uh, uh, before coronavirus restrictions came into place, there were five states in our country that for years have been doing all of their elections through mail in voting, 100% mail in voting. No problems, no big, you know, stories about the integrity of the ballot, anything else. Um, we have 28 states that now have what they call no excuses absentee ballot voting, which means that you can request an absentee ballot from your local town hall. You don't have to be, you don't have to say that you're traveling out of town, that you're sick, that you're disabled. They're going to send it to you and you can mail it in. It doesn't matter. And then in addition to that, we have 17 more states that uh, want you to, to identify on your absentee ballot why you're not showing up in person. Most of those states have now passed legislation uh, or, or regulations where you can say your fear of uh, c- uh, catching the coronavirus is an accepted reason for that. So uh, across all those states, you have the every voter has the ability to vote by mail or absentee ballot. They are the exact same thing. And then for those states that don't have it, or for those people who don't feel like they need to, of course, they can show up on election day and vote. We have some states, as you all know, have early voting. So you can show up for on any of a number of days for you know two weeks before election day to vote. To, Reed made this point very clearly and very eloquently just a couple of seconds ago. The most important thing is that you vote. If, if, if wear a mask, maintain your distance, 
bring your little pocket hand sanitizer with you. You there is there has never been a moment, uh, perhaps since the Civil War, when voting has been more important than it is right now. You know. If, if you're looking for information, you know, um, whatever state you live in, um, the chief elections officer is probably the secretary of state. Mm-hmm. Um, I live here in Utah, which happens to be an all-male state. Um, you know, the lieutenant governor in our state is the chief elections officer. But, you you know, if you if you live in Wisconsin, you say, you know, Wisconsin elections officer. And, you know, either it's the state or whatever county you live in, um, it should take you pretty quickly to... Um, you know, the place, I think, Ron, there's there's some national resources maybe we can put in the body of the show uh, as well. Um, we we will can do get that. those. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's the early voting, there's the voting by mail, um, and then there's the voting in person. I would say this is that, you know, we've also seen this week, because why not add insult to, to injury, um, you know, that we're now hearing anecdotal reports out of states that, um, you know, postmas- local postmasters are being told to slow down the mail. Um, which is why it's even more essential that if you are going to vote by mail, um, that you apply for your absentee ballot as soon as the window opens for you to mail that ballot, that you do so. Because if they can delay it for two weeks, you know, and you, and you, and you vote October 15th, you very well might not hit the deadline. You might not get it to your polling place, but if you get your absentee ballot September 1st and you mail it September 2nd, um, you know, with the exception of them putting those ballots on the back of a turtle and crawling to the registrar's office, they're probably not going to be able to delay it. So I think it's also a matter of showing how early you can vote. Remember, Republicans used to do this as a matter of course, and Jennifer knows this uh, better than anybody, probably, um, that early voting and voting by mail is the greatest way to bank your votes and in- increase you the efficiency of your targeting. Um, and so Trump's, you know, Trump's playing a double game where he says, delay the elections, vote by bail doesn't work. And then, you know, Eric Trump, his, I don't know if he's Fredo number one or Fredo number two in the Trump family, uh, sends out an email saying, um, you know, make sure to request your absentee ballot today. So it's all part of a, I don't even want to call it a strategy because I'm not sure he's, he's, he's not capable cognitively of strategizing, but it is a, it is an instinctual self-defense mechanism in its own way to say, I need to cause as much trouble here because I know all things being equal, if I leave if I leave all this stuff quiet, if I don't throw sand in the gears and throw dust up, I'm going to get crushed. You know, I'm going to lose 38 states or something. And so I think we shouldn't forget that. The plans that he has are, you know, no no further down the road than the end of his nose. Um but he is, you know, the lizard brain does have a very solid self-preservation uh chip in it. And, uh, and I think that's probably just an extension of what we're seeing now. And so, you know, again, we can get, you know, we can and will as the Lincoln project and with associated groups provide any and all, uh, voter information and resources that we can to ensure people, uh, are able to vote. If you've got friends and family who aren't comfortable going to a polling place, uh, and you live in a state, most of the target electoral college states that we're looking at this year, uh, have no fault absentee balloting. Um, and so just make sure that if that's how you want to participate, uh, that you go ahead and get those things done. Most of the deadlines for requesting that ballot are very late, you know, late September, October, some right up until, uh, the day before the election. So, you know, as Schmidt said, I think maybe on an earlier episode, the only person who can ultimately prevent you from casting your ballot is you. Yeah. I think it is fair to say that in this election, voting is going to take a lot more work for each and every voter than it has before in any election 
uh, in any election previously. Well, which not means, so, I would say, yeah. you know, John, not so much more work, just more consciousness, you know, just paying sure. attention sure. And, and being well, informed. It's not yeah. more work. You're still going to do that. You know, you're going to check a box on a piece of paper and drop it in your mailbox yeah. or you're going to show up and stand online like you always have. Yeah. Fair. I, you're right. It's planning. It's it's, it's planning. It's understanding exactly. how voting is going to work where you live, and that takes a little bit of extra effort this time around than waiting right. for your turn to stand in line to go to your polling place as you always do. Uh, it's not going to be the same as it always has been this year. Uh, but I want to go to the 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 story about the postmasters uh, in in just a minute. But before we do, I want to close out just vote by mail. And 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 wrap up any other uh, any other points or information we can provide uh, on this score because because of the coronavirus pandemic we're seeing record numbers of people voting by mail. Um, Kentucky, for example, just fell shy of their record number of votes in a presidential primary, uh, but seventy five percent of the votes cast were from mail in ballots, uh, up from two percent who usually vote absentee. Um, uh, read in states like New Hampshire, uh, they have expanded absentee voting uh, to include fear of catching the coronavirus as an excused reason to vote by mail. Jennifer, you mentioned that. Uh, and we'll get to the, the the mail piece of this in a minute, ac- the actual moving of paper in the mail in a minute. But how important across the board is the expansion of absentee voting going to be in this election? As Jennifer has already experienced, unfortunately, this year, There are millions of seniors uh, in this country who are very likely to be uncomfortable and, frankly, personally unsafe going to a polling place and standing cheek by jowl with hundreds of other people for an hour or so Um, and going into a, you know, a voting booth, um, you know, where who knows if it's been sanitized or any of the other things. And so I think that it's hugely important. Um, because you know, those, those older voters, right. I I don't know if it's 50 plus 55 Mm -hmm. plus also vote in much higher propensities, Mm -hmm. uh, than just about anybody else, right. Mm -hmm. Old people vote and they vote all the time. And so I think that, you know, ensuring that they are able to exercise their rights as Americans to cast a ballot, I think is an essential part of this. And as we've already seen, um, you know, nursing homes, assisted living facilities are being just overrun, uh, with COVID. And so, you know, making sure that the folks in those places, you know, and, and this is probably the, the role of, you know, we can certainly do a lot on the, on the awareness front, but there are a lot of groups in states and cities and counties that need to make sure that those folks, um, you know, are aware of their options, aware of the ways they can and should participate so that they can do so safely. Um, but also, you know, in such a way that, uh, their ballot gets turned in or mailed in time. Uh, you know, in California too, you know, they have what's called, it's pejoratively called ballot harvesting, which is other people can be assigned to take your ballot to the polling place. I'm not sure how many states allow that. Mm. Uh, Probably not a ton would be my guess. But, um, you know, whatever it is we can do to folks who otherwise are going to be, you know, disadvantaged to going in person, you know, I think we need to really focus on ensuring their ability to participate. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's one other, one other point that I just want to, uh, you can respond to this if you like, I just want to offer it to our, to our listeners. And, uh, uh, I think I mentioned last week that in primary elections across the country so far this year, NPR reported that at least 65,000 absentee or mail-in ballots have been rejected because they arrived after the deadline. And many of those, almost most of those were because were, were 
due to no fault of the voter. And now, according to the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, out of the 33.3 million, sorry, this is in 2016, out of the 33.3 million ballots, mail-in ballots cast in 2016, 73,565 were rejected for being late. That was in the general election of 2016. Now, in the primary election of 2020, we're almost at the same number, which does not bode well for what's going to happen in, uh, in November. And this is, I think, a good segue into the story about the postmasters, as Reed mentioned, slowing down the mail, being told to slow down the mail. So the, uh, there's a news story uh, in Fortune from July 24th by Nicole Goodkind that I want to talk about. The new Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, uh, has ended overtime work for postal workers. Data from the American Postal Workers Union has found that nearly 20% of all work by mail handlers, carriers, and postal drivers is done in overtime and the cut will lead to delays in mail delivery. This comes after the Postal Service warned Congress in April that it will run out of cash by the end of September without financial assistance. Now, Reed, you mentioned the, you know, the 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 delay here and this this new postmaster general who's been appointed by Trump. It just this feels to me like one of those situations where the president is making a problem so that he can take credit for solving it or so that he can blame somebody else. Uh, I, I just, I don't know how to, how to react to this other than it feels very nefarious. Uh, well, I mean, he also, the guy uh, that you mentioned is also the first, I believe, postmaster general in the history of the country uh, who wasn't actually a, a longtime postal employee. So it's just one more, you know, um, crony of Trump's that they put in there. Again, I think that, you know, we should, we give Trump a lot of credit for being, um, you know, this, this evil mastermind. He, he's not capable of, of dreaming up any of this. He's, uh, he's saying okay to it because he knows it advantages him. Um, but I think, you know, it's almost worse because you've got him as a vehicle to allow these things to happen. Um, and he likes shows of strength and he likes obviously being in control. And so that, that's what this does. I think, you know, we, we sometimes, I think probably a lot of times, take the Postal Service for granted. Uh, but, you know, it was uh, neither rain nor snow nor dark of night. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep them from their appointed rounds. You know, you go back. I think that, you know, the, the post office was one of the first departments, uh, you know, set up in the new, you know, either in the Articles of Confederation or at the beginning of the country. Uh, you know, the Pony Express, right, mm -hmm. which connected the West uh, you know, back to the East and, and started, you know, the first sort of transcontinental communication before the telegraph and everything else came into play. And so, you know, they, they, the, the postal service has served as the connective tissue to Americans for many, many years. Now, obviously with the advent of the internet, that is, you know, so, you know, pretty significantly diminished because they're, you know, you can, you can send an email rather than sending a letter and you can make an argument <clears throat> that my grandmother used to send beautifully handwritten letters, you know, three, four, five pages on an almost weekly basis to her friends. Um, and that's, you know, we can have another discussion about, you know, human contact and interaction, but it's so easy to communicate now instantaneously uh, that, you know, the mail can feel a little bit uh, old fashioned, but that mean that doesn't mean that when it comes to voting, that it's any less important. And so, you know, I think that again, um, 
the overtime piece is just one more way to curtail the ability of individual post offices or the large sorting facilities, which I'm sure dot the countryside, um, from doing the jobs that they need to do. But also remember that this is going to fool with, this is not just about voting. This is also going to fool with like people's bills, their mortgages, you know, their electric payments. I mean, and so, you know, you start getting late bills and the electric company says, Hey, I'm going to ding your credit because, uh, you know, you didn't pay your bill on time. And you're like, Hey, Yep. The thing didn't show up for six weeks. Yep. What do you want me to do? Your unemployment check, your tax right. returns. Yeah. Right. And look, I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those may be done electronically now, but there's probably a lot who get an analog check, mm-hmm. you know, every month or every couple of weeks, whatever it is. So, you know, fooling with the postal service has obviously very uh potentially dire circumstances or uh, consequences for voting. But it also, you know, spreads out through the country. I mean, everybody still, I would assume, goes to check their mail, right? Whether or not, whether or not yeah, yeah. you get junk mail or yeah. whatever it is, so people check. check their mail all the yeah. time, every yeah. day. Yeah. Um, I know it's my wife's favorite thing to do is take the dog up to the, po- the, the mailbox and get the mail every day. So <laughs> maybe it's just because she's away from me and the kids after 140 days. But um, yeah. so I think that it's, it's just one more way of utilizing for his own purposes uh, the executive authority that he has at his disposal. And, and I, I would say, frankly, I don't think that this is a circumstance where the president's creating a problem so he can turn around and fix it and show how strong he is. I do think that the president and the people around him are very cognizant of the impact this will have on the ability for every vote to be counted. And I, and I think that in addition to maybe a lot of other things, I think that's very much what this story is about. And if you look at, you know, we have now reached a point where this president has surrounded himself with people who have the ability to influence this election. And I am a, I don't want to start to sound like a conspiracy theorist either, but who is our top law enforcement officer uh, in the country? It's, it's attorney general, William Barr. Yeah possibly the most corrupt, most dishonest uh, AG that we've had, certainly in my adult lifetime, that I have ever seen in the way that he conducts himself. You know, you look at the people that the president has put into these influential positions, and now we see it at the post office to Reed's point, a guy who knows nothing about mail, much less yeah. the postal system. Yeah. Uh, and now he's in charge. And he the first thing he does, and to be clear for folks, he's only been there for a couple of weeks. The first big thing he does is create a roadblock to getting mail-in votes counted. This is, I think that we all need to accept that this election is not going to be decided on November 3rd, that it's going to be a, a, a potentially long and painful process that could well end up the same as Bush, the first Bush election, you know, at the Supreme Court, who knows. But the good news out of all of this is that elections are certified at the state level. So yeah. for individual voters who are concerned about you know, will their vote get counted? How soon is there, you know, is this, you know, if the state decides to certify the elections as of November 5th, and we know that there's still 10,000 mail-in votes in your state, you know, there's, there are a lot of other steps to this process. I am very suspicious of the action taken by the, the new postmaster general. I think it is almost entirely about this election. That's a really alarming point that has come up a lot in our recent conversations and it the the point about what happens after November 3rd and how long it takes for us to actually have a decisive victory 
uh, for Joe Biden. Reed, is it even worth thinking about that period of time following the election? Or should we just focus on doing everything we can right now to make sure as many people can vote and do vote in, uh, on November 3rd? But it, feel, it feels almost like we would be remiss if we didn't talk about what we, what we see coming down the pipe right now, right after November 3rd. Sure. This would be the worst example of not being able to walk and chew gum in the history of, of the United States. Like we have to, we have to prosecute the campaign on a daily basis. Um, and, and all the folks listening to this and all the folks who follow us on social media and all the folks who've signed up for our email and all the people who attend our, our town halls are all part of this together. We're all in this together. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in lockstep, right? Marching forward to November 3rd. Uh, as we do that though, Ron, you make a good point, which is what are all the things that we can and must do from our position to ensure that, as Jennifer said, uh, that come no, you know midnight on November 3rd, if it's not a total blowout and it's just so clear that Trump has been driven from office, that there is a delay, you know, we need to ensure that um, every last, you know, voting rights group is ready to go. Every last group of conscientious, constitutionally centered election lawyers are on the stick, right? There are more of us than there are of them. And there always will be. And right now, numbers will be our friend, both in the election and in its aftermath. And so from my perspective, we must be prepared to defend our country in all the ways that are, um, you know, legal, legitimate, safe, otherwise. Um, But we can't take it for granted. Uh, And I don't know how much more we can say about that. And you'll see a lot more from us on this front um, in the coming days and weeks. But this is this is the kind of stuff that they need for Trump to have any chance of winning. To have any chance of winning has to be derision, you know, division, ugliness, disunion, confusion, uh, misinformation, yep. disenfranchisement, making it harder to vote, consolidation of polling places, de- you know, delay of absentee ballots. Like it's all the mechanical things yeah. they can do because they know. And I think the GOP writ large knows they can't win the the in the marketplace of ideas because they don't have any, and they can't run on their record at this point because if you're Donald Trump, your record is death, destruction, and and you know the worst economy, even more so than the depression at this point. Um, and if you're Republican senators, uh, you got nothing to run on because you've been you know you've been chasing Donald Trump and holding on to his coattails yeah. for you know three and a half years. And I'll tell you. Um, you know, I know that we're we're taping this for you know the to, for Friday delivery, mm-hmm. but you know if these United States senators, you know, and I assume Mitt Romney, if he has not yet said something, will say something. Yeah. But the rest of them, you know, <clears throat> if if they won't stand up for this, they won't stand up for anything. Yeah. And from my perspective, they don't deserve R's behind their name anymore. They deserve T's behind their name because they're not Republicans and they're not conservatives. Yeah. They have sacrificed every bit of what they might have considered to be philosophy or ideology at the altar of this guy, and they deserve what's coming to them in 94 days. And so when we hear people say, I can't believe you're taking out Republicans, they're not Republicans. They're not even, they're, they're unwilling 
to put their country first. Yeah. And I, I don't give them, whereas like Trump is incapable of doing his job because he's so psychologically broken. These people know better. They're cowards. They're cowards. They're jellyfish. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you have an, what letter you have behind your name. If you're fundamentally unsuited, unqualified, or undeserving of the office, you're going to get what's coming to you on November 3rd. And I believe that the American voters in states across this country are going to tell Republican members of the United States Senate they had their chance and they failed. Yeah. And they failed miserably. And they can all shuffle off to their offices on K Street and try and gin up some bullshit lobbying career uh, when this is over and say, those jerks at the Lincoln Project stabbed me in the back. Because remember, it'll never be their fault. Right. Right. It'll never, yeah. they'll never take, they won't take yeah. responsibility for anything now. Yeah. They and they sure as hell Trump. won't next yeah. year. Yeah. So it seems fair to say uh, to the voters listening to this conversation right now, to prepare for the eventuality that this may not be over on November 3rd, that we may have to fight longer than that. I, I think there's all, there's like a 1% chance that this is all decided on the night of November 3rd, as far as, and I think people should just be prepared for that, like mentally prepared, like this is not going to be a normal election. But I also think that what people need to be prepared for is that no matter what the margin of, of victory is, no matter if this is counted and decided two days later or has to go to the Supreme Court in December, no matter what the process is, people need to be prepared for the fact that Trump is not going to accept the, if he loses, and, and I genuinely believe that we are on a path where he could lose it. If he loses, he will not ever give credibility to that outcome. He will never say it was a tough fight, the other guy won fair and square. He will never say it. There is, he is going to continue to advance conspiracies. He's going to, to continue to attack every human being on earth other than himself. And um, he is going to make money off of this for the rest of his life. He is when he leaves the White House, and he will leave the White House. This idea that people have that oh, Trump won't leave. One, he what Trump will never do is allow himself to be filmed dragged out of the White House by people in military garb. He'll leave, but he will spend the rest of his life making money off of the mess that he is making out of this election. Whether it's Trump TV or you know uh, books, Trump University, you know whatever, he is going to find a way to take the naivety or the um, trust of so many that so many Americans have put into him and turn it into a cash cow for himself, which brings me back to what I said near the beginning of all this, because Donald Trump thinks you're stupid. And if you are a Republican, a lifelong Republican, an active Republican who thinks that you are uh, defending and, and protecting this president because it's for the party then you are the stupidest one that on his list. He he has got you wrapped around his finger. He has got you behaving and making decisions that you would never have engaged in in you know your pre-Trump life. And you will eventually come to a point where you look back and are shocked by your own choices. Donald Trump has got you guys wrapped around his finger. He thinks you're stupid. He's going to make money off of you. And he is putting our country at risk in the process. Going back to Super Tuesday in early March, we've already seen reports of long lines and hours long waiting times at polling places. 
in states like Texas and California and Nevada and Georgia. And I believe in Georgia, uh, there have been reports of systematic consolidation of polling locations in in especially democratic uh, communities and, and, and in places where there, there are high concentrations of, of minority voters. Jennifer, how common is it for people to have to wait in a long line to vote? Let's just start there. Well, it's not uncommon. You know, over, especially in these states, you know, where we see where they have early voting, because you know, for exactly that reason, because of the, um, you know, and and so certainly it's not uncommon to have to wait to vote in a small state like New Hampshire. The longest I've ever waited online to vote is probably twelve minutes. You know, and and that's a long line. There are other states, you know, Florida, other states around the country where long lines are are fairly are, are fairly common. I think the um, you know the the issue of consolidating these voting places is a clear effort by uh, one party to um, to diminish the vote, to you know to repress the vote, and to do so very specifically uh, in minority communities of all kind. And it is for the same reason that they do everything else, you know, in this cycle because they know they're losing. And if they allow, pe- you know, the people to simply come out and cast a ballot, um, then they don't have any chance at all at, at winning. I, I think the most important thing to talk to people about when we about waiting in line is it's worth it. You know, I, I don't know if it's going to if you're going to have to wait for an hour, if you're going to have to wait for 13 hours. I, I don't know, but it's worth it. It's it, and and it's rare that we get the opportunity as Americans to take a genuinely sacrificial action to protect our country. You know, it's the very few who who serve in the military. It's the very few who who you know really put their lives on the line for the Constitution. We're not asking you to to put your life on the line, but we are asking you to do something that is sacrificial. I, I can't think short of protecting my children's lives. I can't think of what is more valuable and more worth my, the sacrifice of my time and comfort than to protect our country and to protect the, the foundational, you know, principle of my right to vote and your right to vote. It's our right to be heard. It's our right to choose our, our representation and to, to have a say in the, the path our country takes in the future. This election, and Ron, I said this to you on a, on a past podcast, the outcome of this election is going to decide the framework that your grandchildren grow up in. It's going to, de- if Donald Trump is not soundly and overwhelmingly defeated, then we are going to continue into the next generation in, a, in an America where Trumpism has influence. So when you were chair of the party, uh, the Republican Party in New Hampshire, did you have opportunities or did you have tools at your disposal to combat delays and ensure voters stayed in line? Oh, absolutely. Uh, any any good state party, any well-organized state party uh, on election day, especially on pres- in, in a presidential cycle, um, you know, has a legal team in place ready to respond. And, and we certainly did in New Hampshire. Uh, and not, we didn't just, you know, when I was chairman, I was there for two cycles. We had it in both cycles. We had, um, you know, senatorial uh, 
races on the ballot in both cycle. You know, you have a legal team in place that's literally, you know, d- hopefully, dozens of experts that are sitting in a war room together with the telephone, and you've got the, you know, the number, the, your, your emergency phone number is out to all of your operatives, all of your poll watchers on your website, any voter, you know, um, and so you have that rapid responsibility to address it immediately. We've been, we've had situations where we've had to um, go to the um, Secretary of State's office and um, that, you know, request that they leave a polling place open beyond the hours because of the number of people that are waiting online outside. We know that that's happened in a lot of other states as well. The Secretary of State's in most states have the authority to do that. Um, if it's denied, you have the ability to immediately take it to the courts on election day. The most important thing if, thing, if you're a voter who's online and they're trying to close your, your polling place, do not leave. You know, don't get offline and go home, stay there, demand that you have the right to vote. At the very least, what some will do is allow everybody online to vote and, and then create a pile of provisional ballots so that as this is, you know, as uh, the issue of whether or not they should have closed or should not have closed the polling place can be, um, adjudicated in the courts, you're at least your ballot has been cast and has the the ability to be counted after the fact. Um, if you're a voter and you're online and they are trying to close your ballot, um, your, your ballot location, your voting Polling location, location mm-hmm. um, do not get offline. Call the, you can do it. You've all got a smartphone. Call the secretary of state's office, call your party. If you're a de- Democrat, call your state de- Democratic headquarters. If you're a Republican, call your, you know, don't, but don't get offline. You have, if you are online before the normal closing time for your polling place, mm-hmm. you have a right to cast a ballot. Don't leave. So we're going to put some links to resources in the show notes for this episode so that uh, folks can begin to prepare themselves with that information and and the phone numbers, have them handy on their cell phones. And um, but, uh, but Reed, I want to uh, touch on one other thing because we found that that article about um, about Georgia. Mm-hmm. So it's it's often black voters who bear the brunt of these long lines and, and in Georgia, for example. These sure. polling places were closing after midnight in their June primary, and the Atlanta, the Atlanta Journal Constitution conducted an analysis of election data in an article from July 28th by uh, Mark Mark Neese and Nick Timmel, mm-hmm. and found that only 61 percent of majority black precincts closed on time, compared with 80 percent of mostly white precincts. So, what can we do? What can Georgia voters do? What can we do to ensure every voter is able to cast their vote and and combat this kind of systematic discrimination and disenfranchisement in minority communities that are obviously likely to vote against the president? Um, well, the thing they can do legislatively is demand that the U.S. Senate, the Republican Senate leadership take up the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and put the preclearance pieces back of the 65 Voting Rights Act back in place that the Supreme Court stuck, struck down several years ago. Um, but in the immediate term, uh, I think it is, you know, I think, you know, it's been a long time since we as Americans had to really plan to do anything other than probably go on vacation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> if you think about it, you know, for for a lot of us, it's, you know, we haven't in years had to do any real planning or, you know, everything, you know, we you get up, you eat, you sleep, you go to work, but all those things are pretty rote. Um, Mm -hmm. at least they have been in the past, but they're not now. Um, and, and voting never has been, and is certainly less now. 
And so if you just think about going to the grocery store or getting gas or whatever, you know, you, you need your mask, you need your hand sanitizer, you know, you want to keep six feet apart. Um, you know, that's a, that's a pain in the ass enough as it is to just do the sort of normal things to be able to get food to the house. Uh, but when you're talking about standing in a line for several hours, uh, you know, it could be cold, it could be raining, whatever the case might be, uh, you know, you have to do a lot more planning to make sure you've done that. And so I know it, it sounds almost silly to have to say these things, but again, it goes back to understanding how you can vote, when you can vote, where you can vote, all those different things to ensure that your ballot is counted. Um, you know, we should not assume that the Secretary of State of Georgia, who I assume is a is a Brian Kemp stooge, uh, is going to do anything to ensure that it's easier for uh, communities of color to vote in November. Uh, we already saw in Ohio just this last weekend that the Secretary of State said they're going to, quote, consolidate polling places um, and that you'll be able to vote, uh, you know, if, so long as you're in the right county, you can vote at any polling place. Well, my concern as a, you know, as an armchair electoral scholar is that that means that if you do not go to your precinct, that that ballot probably automatically becomes um, provisional, which means mm-hmm. that it gets counted last, if at all. Right. And so, me, yeah. Say more about provisional ballots, just really briefly. A provisional ballot, and Jennifer will probably know more than I do, but is one where there is there is some issue, probably technical in nature, that allows you to cast a ballot, um, but it will need additional scrutiny and review. Um, after all the you know mail-in ballots, election day ballots, early day ballots are counted, then they'll go through these provisional ballots again. Maybe it's that you again voted in your the county in which you live, but not in the precinct in which you live. Right. Well, that doesn't mean that your ballot and your voter invalid. It just means that you're not on the roll for that precinct. So eventually someplace at the registrar's office, they got to go match you up to the right place, make sure you are who you are and, and, you know, eventually, you know, tally, tally the vote in that way. Um, but if you do that for an, a, a state, the size of Ohio, right, you could have potentially hundreds of thousands yeah. of provisional yeah. votes. Um, and, you know, who knows what effect that has. And so, um, you know, we should not underestimate. And, you know, look, I spent five weeks in Florida during the during the recount in 2000. And, you know, if you don't think that it mattered that Jeb Bush was governor and Catherine Harris was secretary mm-hmm. of state, one happened to be the president, you know, presumptive president elect's brother. And the other one happened to be a dyed in the wool Republican. Um, you got another thing coming. And so, you know, it's this is why these elections matter and why elections do have consequences, because you know, how vote, how elections are conducted, how votes are counted, the rules that can be put in place administratively, uh, which by which I mean that there are already existing rules and regulations that allow uh, elections officials to do things, um, have massive potential impact on the outcome of an election. So, you know, the best thing we can do, and we will do on our part from the Lincoln Project's standpoint, is ensure that every voter that we can reach understands how it is they need to prepare and ultimately cast that ballot, whether or not it's in Georgia, Kentucky, Ohio, Wisconsin, any of the places we've seen trouble so far this year. Generally, you know, in my experience, certainly the majority of the of ballots that become provisional ballots have to do with identity issues. You know, could you, did you, do you have voter, um, do you have ID required in your state and you forgot to bring your, your license with you? It becomes a provisional ballot and you have the opportunity to go home and get your license or to fill out paperwork or the secretary of state, depending on what the, you know, every state is different, prove who you are and that you had a right to be there. Um, in, in Manchester, New Hampshire, for example, we have a lot of people uh, who move from one 
uh, district to the next within the city, you know, and, and so they, you know, moved in between and didn't re-register to vote in their new district. Um, there, are, so there, it, generally provisional ballots, um, are, are, there's nothing nefarious about it. There's, it's just, it's like a, it's an administrative thing more than anything. And in an election like this, where every vote is going to matter, um, those ballots are going to take time to go through that administrative process and, and be confirmed as legitimate, as legitimate votes. And so it's, it's just one more thing that's going to add to how this is all going to unfold after November 3rd, you know, the actual day passes. Um, but again, I go back to what I said before about don't get offline, cast your ballot. If they tell you it's going to be a provisional ballot, that's okay. Do it, cast it, do you know, do what you have to do. Um, get it into the process. Yeah. The thing that I always remember about provisional ballots is that if you end up casting one, understand that in some places, provisional ballots may not actually ever be counted unless the election totals are within a certain margin yes. uh, of victory. So if it's an overwhelming victory one direction or another, they're not going to even count those provisional ballots. But if it is close, they will. They will open right. them and they will go through the administrative process that you described. And, and, and one, of the, the one of the challenges that people who you know really care about ballot integrity have faced over time is that depending on the state, it can be hard to get the get accurate information about how many provisional ballots are sitting in a box that, you know, it, it, you know, to make the determination whether or not it's worth it, you know, in quotes to, uh, count all those ballots. I'm a believer that every ballot should be counted no matter what in every state, no matter what the results are, no matter what the process is. Um, you know, but that it's, that just becomes another issue that all of the folks on the legal team for each of the parties for Republican democratic parties are going to, you know, kind of struggle with how many provisional ballots are there really um, and and then what process do we have to go through to make sure they're all counted? So to sum up the conversation so far, before we move to our, our upcoming week, make your plans now, make some noise now to raise awareness about all the things that you can do to ensure that everybody casts their vote in, in November. Read as you're making your plans to vote this November. What are you, what story is going to be watching next week? I mean, what aren't we watching next week? So, uh, let's <laughs> I see. mean, we've spent, we've spent the entire episode talking about voting. Sure. Uh, so I mean, if there's, if there's other, fo- other things that folks need to be aware of. No, I think it, yeah. look, we've, we've just passed 150,000 Americans who've died of COVID-19. Um, we reported today, which is, I think what prompted Trump's, uh, tweet about the voting was that the United States economy shrunk by nearly a third in the second quarter, worse than anything that ever happened in the Great Depression. Um, we have, I believe, what is a vastly underreported story on not only uh, rising unemployment, which I think will happen and will skyrocket again, but also a really, um, I think, what will be a rupturing eviction and foreclosure crisis that is probably weeks, if not months, if not weeks away. And, and so I think that my fear, as you watch all these data points come both politically and electorally, uh, and, and economically is that, you know, the first week of September, the second week of September into October could be some of the most devastatingly, uh, unsettled, uh, economic times since my grandparents were alive who lived through the last great depression 
And I think it all lays at the feet of Donald Trump. He is to blame. He is singularly to blame. And I think that we must continually tell our voters that if you are a Lincoln Project supporter and listening to this, make sure your friends and your family know whether or not it's the economy, whether or not it's health, whether or not it's dead Americans, whether or not it's kids going back to school, which we are struggling with on a daily basis in my house, whether or not it is college football, right? Doak Walker, the big house, the horseshoe, they're going to be empty this fall. And why are they going to be empty? Because Donald Trump couldn't do the job, won't be able to do the job, and is incapable of doing anything other than preserving what he believes to be his own best interest. And what am I watching? What are going to be the next manifestations out of this guy uh, to prove that point to us? He, we, as we have said repeatedly, he tells you who he is. It's never been a surprise. We, you know, maybe we were Maybe we were the sirens screaming into the wind for four years, five years. Um, but now more than ever, I think you see a president who is in a corner. There's a reason why he's at 61% disapproval in this country, right? And like hard 50% because the, Amer the, the scales have fallen from the eyes of the American people. And, you know, now it's up to us. We got three months. Do what you got to do. We'll do what we have to do. If you need us, we're there for you. But I'll tell you this, like, it's on us now. This is our country, and it's time to show, um, you know, I, I don't even want to call him a bozo or a clown because it, it, it diminishes the level of ugliness and destruction that he's capable of just by being who he is. Here, here. Jennifer, what stories are you watching? Uh, it, it's hard to follow. It's hard to follow that because, I mean, that was very inclusive of, of what's happening in the world, what we all need to be following. And, um, you know, the, the, I, I think the, the piece of what Reed just said that will probably end up being more influential than people are even realizing right now is the back to school. Because when that moment hits, when parents would normally be sending their kids back to school and they're trying to decide whether or not it's safe for their children to be in a classroom at the same moment that infections are continuing to spike, that we're seeing deaths uh, continue to, to increase. Um, the, the first time that a teacher is infected or God forbid loses his or her life to this after being in the classroom, the, the economic health and emotional turmoil that Americans are going to be experiencing as we go into the fall I think is immeasurable. It's unlike anything that we've seen. But if you want a, a, a new, a, an additional um, contribution to that conversation about what to look at going ahead, uh, the story, as we're all sitting here on Thursday morning recording this to give people a, a time frame here, the story has just come out uh, seconds ago that um, Trump has said that he will not be withdrawing federal officers from Portland, even though yesterday uh, there was some kind of withdrawal agreement reached. He will not be withdrawing those unidentified, you know, fatigue-wearing, paramilitary-looking guys um, from Portland who are essentially, we've seen on video, snatch somebody off the street and throw them into an unmarked van, all under the excuse and the guise that they are somehow defending a single building, a federal courthouse there. And and I think that the reason this is so important is because it, it it's just another step that connects everything that we've been talking about today. Um, and, and to your point at the very beginning of this conversation, Ron, the, the behaviors and the actions that this president has engaged in that are so similar to, um, I, you know, I, I'm a, I, I oppose the idea of trying to make real Hitler comparisons. 
I'm a, I'm somebody who believes that, you know, uh, if 6 million people have not died in a genocide, we shouldn't be saying, you know, he's just like Hitler. But when you look at the totalitarian um, actions of this president, the way that he has tried to abuse the office of the attorney general, the way he is now abusing the office, you know, the, um, the postmaster, every, um, every appointment that he has made, the way that he has tried to abuse them to protect his banana republic. And now we see that he is refusing to withdraw these paramilitary troops out of our cities where there is a good argument to be made. They don't have a right to be there where they are clearly conducting themselves, um, in a way that is intended to, um, intimidate and silence free speech amongst Americans, um, and where they are, uh, obviously conducting themselves in a manner that is intended to somehow bolster Donald Trump's self image of being a strong man that he thinks is going to lead him, uh, to a better chance of winning this election. So the fact that we're just learning that even though he came to an agreement yesterday to withdraw those troops, he's now saying, at least for the now, that he will not do that. Um, I think that this action in and of itself puts Americans in danger, puts people who are engaging in their constitutional right to be heard in danger, um, and certainly puts our country at large in danger. Yeah, and let me just say that um, now that we've seen what, uh, what, you know, DHS and, and I don't believe that Chad Wolf is bright enough to come up with any of this stuff. So we should assume Bill Barr is playing his, you know, Eastern European interior minister yeah. game somewhere in DC. Yeah. Um, but this is a wake up call for governor Pritzker of Illinois or governor Wolf of Pennsylvania or governor Whitmer of Michigan. Yeah. Um, you know, governor Cuomo of New York, um, any place and every place like governors are, I mean, states, I know it seems weird, but in our federal system, states are sovereign, yeah. right? And they have their own, uh, they have their own rights, you know, and, and this is one more thing just on the Republic, you know, these Republican senators. I mean, think about this. If any democratic president had sent federal officers into the streets of America, oh my God, Republicans would be screaming the 10th amendment, individual liberty, states, states rights, rights. Yep. federal oversight, you know, or federal overreach, all this other stuff. And so, you know, the governors of these states, the secretaries of state of these states, you know, need to be prepared for these guys coming to their, to their towns. And they need to say, what am I going to do about it? Because I think they caught Governor Brown and Mayor Wheeler off guard. I don't believe that they'll be able to do that to Governor Whitmer or Governor Pritzker or Governor Wolf. And, you know, they're not going to stand for it. They're not going to, they don't, the last thing in the world anybody wants is a standoff between yeah. DHS officers and, you know, the highway patrol or the national guard. Um, and that's why these things become so dangerous because it only takes one guy popping off around, um, you know, for really bad things to happen. And so, you know, I think that those leaders at the state level need to make it very clear to the president, to Chad Wolf, to Bill Barr, your goons are not welcome here. And if you need to call your governor and your senator and your member of Congress and your state legislator and state senator to remind them of that, you should probably do that and say they're not welcome here. And I can remember very clearly during my four years as 
chairman in New Hampshire, how many times the Republican activists, Republican voters, even in, in our at the state level, Republican electeds were con- sure they were just convinced that Barack Obama was going to try to somehow, um, you know, send the military in and, uh, you know, for the purpose of initiating, you know, violence in the streets so that he could take advantage of that to um, expand his executive powers, to keep the White House for a, a third term, like all these crazy, completely unsubstantiated worries and conspiracies that the Democratic president was going to do this. And and I remember very clearly, for those who are listening in, those of you who are my, my friends in the Republican Party from those days, I know how you reacted. I know what you said. I know what your, 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 you know, your, your, goal was and your what you know what the roots of that were and and you were so and 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 i remember so all of you tell if this happens i'm gonna get my gun and i you make no mistake i will defend my house i will defend my family i will well what's happening right this second is that your republican president is doing exactly what you were sure barack obama was plotting to do and you are standing silent You are doing nothing to protect your family. You are doing nothing to protect your state. You're doing nothing to protect your country. You are doing nothing to protect the constitution of this great country. I don't want people to get their guns and go out in their streets, but I want them to stand up and use their voices and finally, finally stand on the principles that all of us as every, as Republicans, you know, have, have campaigned on for so long, because right now you are allowing the Republican president to run roughshod over our constitution. It's inexcusable. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.